welcome to Interchange. Today's show is in the name of the future, and our opening song is We Will Become Silhouettes by the Postal Service. The idea of what it means to be human is changing, with countless catastrophic events looming from nuclear weapons to climate instability, from biotechnology to wars of autonomous machines. We center our fears and our hopes for a better future on the child to come, the survival of the next generation. We should do better for the children. The children will save us. Though urgent, always a deferral to the child to come. But why count on products of reproduction? Life is also outside and beyond the human, and there are other, and perhaps better, in a non-moral sense, ways to organize life. I'm joined today in the studio by Rebecca Sheldon, who is an assistant professor in the English department at Indiana University here in Bloomington. Her critical work focuses on American literature and culture, with particular emphasis on speculative and science fiction, and also queer theory, childhood studies, speculative philosophy, and feminist new materialism. Sheldon's first book, The Child to Come, Life After the Human Catastrophe, published by the University of Minnesota Press in 2016, considers the child figure under conditions of environmental threat. In it, she contends that the long-standing identification of the child with the future has begun to shift meaning, asking what new purposes the child figure serves when the future no longer guarantees safe harbor. In the apocalyptic visions of contemporary science fiction, there are profound transformations in the meanings of the child, reproduction, the species, and the planet. Bringing together queer theory, eco-criticism, and science studies, The Child to Come draws on and extends arguments in childhood studies about the interweaving of the child with the life sciences. Sheldon reveals that neither life nor the child are what they used to be. Under pressure from ecological change, artificial reproductive technology, genetic engineering, and the neoliberalization of the economy, the queerly human child signals something new, the biopolitics of reproduction. Rebecca Sheldon, thanks for joining us today on Interchange. Hi. <laughs> Let's begin in 1964. One, two, three, four, five, seven, six, six, eight, nine, These are the stakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live or to go into the dark. We must either love each other or we must die. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home. That was a campaign ad for Lyndon Johnson that aired just one time on September 7th, 1964. It's been called uh, the Daisy Girl ad, uh, or Daisy Girl. It features, uh, it features in your book's introduction, uh, Rebecca Sheldon. Why do you choose to focus on it? I really think it's a fascinating um, 
uh, text, even though it aired just once. When I think about it in the book, I put it in combination with a couple of other texts, especially Stanley Kubrick's um, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Um, but just focusing on, on Daisy Girl, um, I think that uh, the thing that I find so interesting about it is that it has sort of um, a long history of thinking about um, and making meaning from the child on the one hand, but then it also has a sort of new and interesting twist that has to do with its moment of composition in the 60s. And so um, I, I start with it because it gives a chance for me to think about that longer historical context and then to draw out some of the things that are new in the 60s. Um, so I, I'm interested in um, in that, that moment, um, you know, certainly, you know, it is a uh, the logic of the um, um, of the ad is about averting um, nuclear war, um, and so the atomic context is really present in it. Um, but there's also a couple of other things in the mid-century, in the 40s and 50s, that are historically new. Um, so there's in, the, in this period um, the very first images of the Earth from space mm. um, are available um, as an, and another kind of visual or scopic um, uh, image. Um, that has become available in this period uh, is the image of the fetus in utero. Oh. So these two kinds of images, I think, are circulating alongside um, the Daisy Girl ad. Um, and so even though we see um, Daisy, who is really the, the actor who plays her, really is a five-year-old girl. She's blonde. The ad is in black and white, but she's sitting in a, a field. It's actually in the middle of Manhattan, but anyway, she's <laughs> sitting in a field of daisies. They're, they're not daisies, they're daffodils. But, <laughs> but she's sitting in a field, um, and she's, she's very much the kind of romantic child of nature that we're used to associating with the romantic period um, and with an idea of sort of natural innocence. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, as she's she's counting down, she sort of makes mistakes. She's playing these, these child, uh, children's games. Um, so in, in its original composition, it's very um, familiar to mm -hmm, us. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems to be like the, the logic of the ad is about, you know, making your vote mean that you prevent harm to this child, <laughs> right, right? right? That that voting the wrong way will, will threaten her future, mm -hmm. um, which is also a, a, a very common relationship that the child has, has um, propped up the, between um, action in the present and consequences in the future. Um, but then something really fascinating happens, um, and that happens, you, you, we weren't able to hear it in the audio clip because it's only in the visual, um, but as the, um, as the voice of the announcer for the weapons test or, um, uh, counts down in the background, takes over for, over for Daisy and counts down in the background, the camera moves from looking at Daisy's face to looking closer and closer and closer and closer and closer inside of her until it's actually inside of her pupil. Mm -hmm. And it's at that moment inside of her pupil that the bomb test explodes. Um, and so I think that there's a really interesting visual or formal symmetry between the materiality unleashed by the bomb, this new sense that the world is a whole thing, that we can see it from space, that the interior of our body is also available to be seen, mm -hmm. that we are made up of matters that are not entirely under co our control that we can access. Um, and this, this um, explosion of the bomb inside of Daisy's eye. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why I start with it, because it really sort of pulls together those that longer history and that new um, torsion in the um, way that we're thinking about what the human is capable of doing, um, what kinds of things the earth is composed of, mm -hmm. and how the the, um, the child helps to figure those things. Yeah, it is pretty fascinating. As the more you talked about it, and the more you write you write about it in the book as well, it's it is an amazingly tiny little space of uh, text, basically visual text and audio text as well, but that contains so much. 
that you you wouldn't even think about, right? You you'd see it, and then it would take you a long time to read it, as yeah. you as you're doing here, yeah. right? And as people don't generally do, yeah, right. So it's a it's a text you're re- you're reading very specifically here, and it's fascinating as it, as you can uh, as you go through the book, and and some of these images kind of recur again through the book as you were yeah. talking about the eye as well. It made me think of the cave. Uh, throughout as well, you know, yeah. getting inside a dark place like yeah. that, right? And being yeah. inside the, the child, inside the person, yeah. uh, and all that's inside there and, and hidden or and, yeah. and scary. And, yeah. and, uh, so all these things do a nice job as, as, as holding those things together. Well, uh, thanks. That's really <laughs> nice to be back to here. Um, I mean, the cave is really interesting. I mean, it comes from, I think you're call, recalling uh, one of the chapters is on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and I start with this um, citation from the feminist philosopher Lucy Rigore, who says the cave is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, and what she's what she means by that is that um, there it's often been the case that um, uh, that sort of you know post enlightenment that we've understood um, our relationship to the earth as a kind of binary between nature and culture mm-hmm. um, and that the earth is kind of this passive material that we can use to construct um, you know we can engineer systems for the the maintenance of human life from that um, but that always requires a kind of erasure of the animacy of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so getting back to to the earth and to the earth's own matters is part of what I was seeing in that mm-hmm. in that Daisy ad. Well, I really do like the um, that ad so much, not only because um, of what you're talking about, but also the because uh, Johnson quotes an Auden poem, which surprised yeah. me as well. I was like, I've heard that before, uh, and I didn't realize that either. But that's the September first, nineteen thirty nine, Auden poem that ends. Uh, it actually, I don't think it ends. We must love Mon- No, it doesn't. It's the second stanza from the end um no one exists alone these are these are nice uh, i guess uh, what we might call liberal tropes right uh, <laughs> no one exists alone hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police we must love one another or die uh but in the end it, it goes on with and um and really it's fascinating to me that uh, that he goes to eros and dust uh, beleaguered by the same negation and despair showing an affirming flame. So I, I really liked how it tied oddly to me. It did seem odd to me that they would use, that he would use this particular quote because the flame at the end reminded me again of the, the nuclear explosion, mm-hmm. right? So, so Johnson himself is tying this poem from World War II, mm-hmm. right? And the destruction that will happen at human humanity's hands, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the new technologies unleashed, the the banality of evil unleashed, mm-hmm. the and then Johnson himself being a part of the napalming of of another country as well, firebombing mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Dresden as well. Mm-hmm. All these things sort of tied into that poem and into this image and into this firebomb and mm-hmm. to this much. What look what look what we can do? Mm-hmm. But vote vote for me. <laughs> vote for I don't do it. I, uh, and Red Johnson, of course, is you know murdering people left and right in in, in Vietnam. So. Right. No, I mean, I think that it's that you make an important point, which is that, you know, the the um, the feeling that we can and should protect um, our own, protect our kin, which is really, an, you know, what's mm. part of what's at stake. And mm-hmm. it's always an individual child. This right. is one of the things I chart mm-hmm. through the book. It's never populations of children. Um, it's always the the sentimental point is always a single child mm-hmm. who's under threat. Um, and this is a, a very common trope in climate change discourse, which is a lot of what I, I think about, the the future generations of children who we have to change our actions in the present in order to save. But it's never it's never actually whole populations. It's always just a single right, child. Right. Um, and that sort of self-other distinction, that idea that we are um, beholden to our kin and that we can use that to extrapolate out mm-hmm. from, from mm-hmm. the um, 
the scales. Um, That, I think, um, is really a key part of a sort of longstanding um, way of organizing um, a sense of the nation as having a kind of um, health that's reliant on being able to extract certain diseases Mm. from the social body. Um, At one point that was thought about as degeneracy, right? Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. We can also see it in in the kind of ethno-nationalism that's Mm -hmm. resurgent right now, um, the sort of protection of the national body from internal, external dangers. Um, And that, I think, is... um, you know, part of what you're part of what you're seeing here um, in the Daisy ad um, is this kind of registering of that biopolitical right, discourse right. of preserving the health of the social body through the child. Well, it is uh, again, it is a, a fascinating thing to start with, and I, I we're almost to a fr- uh, oh uh, really break. yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and we do uh, if we can, I suppose this is an apocalyptic vision we're seeing in the first place, right? The 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 end of times in a sense with the the explosion of a nuclear bomb, um, and the, the book goes uh, as you say through environmentalism or works through environmentalism as well in the same register somewhat, right? Mm-hmm. Like these things happen in the same register. When we come back, let let's go ahead and touch on the. Cormac McCarthy, yes. The Road, yes. before we yes. move forward. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Sorry about that. <laughs> so uh, it is time for a break. This is Interchange on WFHB, and we're going to listen to The Calamity Song by the Decembrists off the album The King is Dead. More on catastrophe and salvation when Interchange returns on WFHB. California succumbed to the fall line. We heave relief as scores of innocents die. And support for WFHB comes from the Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. Explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post, writers with a voice, photographers with a vision, online at limestonepostmagazine.com. And support for for Interchange comes from listeners like you and Smithville Fiber, a local provider of internet, voice, and TV service, now also offering home automation and security system for homes and offices throughout South Central Indiana. More information on Smithville's home automation service is available at smithvillesecurity.com. And support for Interchange comes from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976, serving Cajun Creole and home cooking specials every Tuesday and Wednesday evenings, featuring a full bar serving fresh handcrafted cocktails, the Uptown Cafe is located in downtown Bloomington. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Will we gather to conjure the rain down? Will we now build a civilization below ground? And I'll be crowned the community Setting the lay of the Nebraska line 
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm your host, Doug Storm, and joining me today in the firehouse is IU Assistant Professor of English, Rebecca Sheldon. We're talking about the future and about how we use the figure of the child in stories to stabilize that future, even though it probably is going to go off the rails at some point. Um, So when we went to the break, we had uh, uh, unfortunately sort of rushed through things, and we wanted to talk about uh, uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, um, as a part of this apocalyptic apocalyptic vision and the way and the ways that story itself is used uh, to figure the child. Yeah, I think one of the um, important distinctions that I try to draw with uh, my discussion of the road, um, which is an amazing amazing book, um, is that you know the apocalyptic uh, and the catastrophic are often, especially in uh, science fiction. Um, sort of popular science fiction um, used interchangeably as if the apocalypse and and, uh, catastrophe are the same thing. Um, But um, catastrophe actually etymologically means an overturning of a system. Hmm. Um, Whereas an apocalypse, um, which um, uh, has um, uh, various religious connotations, um, is etymologically a kind of revelation, right? Um, Mm -hmm. The book of Revelation is the apocalypse. Um, And so one of the things that I think is really interesting about the road is that it it is ostensibly about a catastrophe. That is the catastrophe of, uh, of basically human knowledge systems. So um, one of the things that um, the the narrator, the, who calls himself the man, really thinks about is the lack of like um, telephone books, um, uh, road signs, mm-hmm. maps, right? All of these ways that we sort of map and cartographize the world and make it a human world mm-hmm. um, are lost in the catastrophe. It's a, an unknown catastrophe. Um, but what I think is most interesting about the novel is that it, it, it shows us a kind of apocalypse of that idea of the human world, hmm. that underneath the human world was always something that was inhuman and perhaps inimical to human purposes. Right, right. Uh, an interesting point you, you make as well, um, and again with maps and roads, is, is uh, and what I thought was fascinating is the, um, the way that that turns time into space. Is that right? Yeah, I call it the landscapification of the future. (laughs) Um, And that's uh, that's a part of my discussion of of, um, sort of popular climate change discourse. And uh, one of the things that I um, argue is that um, if we if we really are and if we really are um, keeping faith with the idea of uh, climate change. One of the things that we have to um, acknowledge is that we um, don't know what kinds of things the systems that we are a part of will be able to do. Mm. So one of the things that I, I love to cite in this context is um, this amazing Canadian sociologist Myra Hurd writes about dumps, um, waste dumps. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the one way to see a waste dump is to say that we're pulling all of these raw materials out of the earth and we're putting them on top of the earth in, co- in configurations that whose who's long last long-term effects we can't possibly know right. right so the whole idea of climate change is that it's it, is that it is possible for there to be a genuine catastrophe a genuine overturning mm. of the systems as they currently exist they're literally doing that right now right yeah yeah yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Like Darwin <laughs> has a book on worms right and how worms literally turn the world over right yeah. right right um, yeah. and I think these um, these um, examples of um, of uh, sort of unknowing mm-hmm. um, 
show us that that's sort of the apocalypse that I'm mm-hmm. talking about in the road. Um, they also show us that when we go to figure the future, we often imagine it as something on a kind of like horizon, mm-hmm. right? So that's what I what I mean by the landscapeification of the mm-hmm. future. It's like the future is just right over past that hill somewhere. Right, right. Um, so it's already here with us. We already sort of know what it is, mm-hmm. and therefore we can kind of manipulate it. Mm. And this actually I draw from um, the way that the child has often um, allowed us to imagine that we can control the future whom that child will be Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by changing and managing the kinds of experience that the child has in the present. Mm -hmm. Um, So this idea, I think, in the starting in the 60s, but definitely in the present, gets extrapolated from the child and the future he will be or the child in the generation that he indexes to the child um, as one complex system among many complex systems that we can then control in the present. Right, right. One, one thing to note, too, and I think this is a big part of the book uh, as well as with, we'll move into reproduction, mm. uh, but there are, uh, I guess, until the very end of the novel, The Road, there's, there are no women. Right, it's it's a, a man and a boy. Right? I, I mean, this is true. The um, the um, there it, it's mostly true. The okay. uh, uh, I wife. I have read it, so oh oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you should. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the the wife is um, not present. Um, she, but she's remembered. Oh, right, right. I, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Right, because right, right. she chose suicide. Mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm. that is the most, um, bib- the, I mean, the whole book is full of biblical references, but that right. is a very biblical This reference. is a good, a good uh, again, a good parallel to the the other book we're, we will step into next if you want to. Sure. Is it, are we ready to do sure, that? Or sure. you want to talk more about The Road? Well, we can come back to it. Okay, so we'll, we'll go to the Joanna Russ's um, yeah. book, uh, which is We Who Are About To dot 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 right? <laughs> um, and uh, so the the suicide of the woman or the wife in in the road works with this book quite well yeah. actually and, and and the choice that you make to yeah to either know your future already yeah. i suppose and commit your future yeah, uh, yeah. so and that, that that really is a part of uh, this novel as well that's right. Um, so uh, Joanna Russ is uh, most famous for a book called The Female Man, uh, and rightly so, a very angry second wave feminist novel that I adore. Um, we Who Are About To, I think, is understudied, um, partially because it's incredibly depressing. Um, <laughs> so it's That's why a, we'll like it here on Interchange. <laughs> right. uh, so it's about a, a small group of interstellar commuters. Um, so imagine like you're on a subway or something, um, except they're going uh, to different planets. Um, and they just fold space time incorrectly and they wind up on a planet. Um, and <laughs> It happens all the time. Yeah. <laughs> What are you going to do? Yeah, this is sort of the Swiss family Robinson of space, right? right? right. (laughs) Um, And and so it's like, I forget how many, it's like four women and three men or something like that um, who are all um, together. And the the group immediately decides that the way that they're going to survive on this this uninhabited planet um, is by forcing the women of breeding age to have children. Um, And the narrator... um, first tries to leave the group and when they won't let her leave the group she comes back and she kills everyone Um, and that happens around page 60 Mm. Um, and then from page 60 to page 140 it's just her slowly starving in a cave (laughs) (laughs) good times so she but she's the only one that disagreed with the with the project yeah Yeah, that's right that's right and and one of the things i look at in the chapter is the way in which um, reviewers at the time other feminist um, critics and and authors um, really hated this book, mm-hmm. um, in part because Russ is uh, was uh, until this book really understood as a kind of um, 
as, as a feminist who is interested in, in saving the female child from conditions of patriarchy. Mm. Um, and in this book, she not only doesn't save the female child, she actually kills the only female the child. The only child, right, yeah. right, right. right. <laughs> um, and I see this, and so it was, it was sort of widely panned um, for its nihilism. Um, but I really see it as posing an important question that we as feminists, I think, haven't fully addressed, which is if we really think that survival is the paramount political virtue, then we also have to reckon with the fact that at some point we're going to be required to turn over our reproductive labors in order to make that mm-hmm. um, survival mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I say that. Um, <laughs> there are uh, some really interesting, this is, uh, this is sort of Shulam with Firestone's vision, mm-hmm, there are some mm-hmm. really interesting um, uh, new uh, cloning experiments that's, uh, and also um, uh, use of, um, of, uh, of pig incubators mm-hmm. that suggest that maybe, <laughs> maybe mm-hmm. this division in the species is coming to an end. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a fair point. It's one that uh, that it is necessary to raise, I think. And we'll talk about reproductive technologies yeah. later. Um, I do think that generally we have had stories of a, a generally male generation from you know Noah's Ark on, right? Mm-hmm. Noah's Ark is a is a mm-hmm. male god and a male captain in a sense, mm-hmm. a male builder of the mm-hmm. ship who, who brings everyone into the belly of the, sh- of the ship and then they go forth and multiply out from that belly as well. No women need it, really. I mean, they're needed, of course, but it's the man who's in charge of all that. Oh, that's a really good point. I mean, in that kind of parthenogenetic fantasy of mm-hmm. male birth is what I think is, is up with the road. Yeah. Oh, um, okay. Sure, sure. But it's interesting that it ends with a, a nuclear family, right? Or the traditional family of sorts? Yeah, quote in, unquote. Yeah, in the critical literature, there's some um, uh, uh, there are some readings that say that what happens at the end is that the boy gets eaten by cannibals and well, he's, he's tender <laughs> and tasty, so of course, that's then. This is which is it? This book too? That this? I mean, is that again? Sorry, I haven't read it, but I no, think no. you you talked about this book and the cannibals, right? Yes, that they're yeah. they they're actually reproducing children for food. Yeah, right. That's this right. is the Jonathan Swift model of of feeding the, the hungry. <laughs> well, in a <laughs> sense. To meet their children. <laughs> right. um, and then I, you know, in the later in the book, I talk about fantasies of infertility. So it's mm. an interesting um, parallel agrarian failure that leads to a need to use fertility for um, sustenance um, versus mm-hmm. uh, widespread infertility. One thing I liked about the, the Russ section in the book, too, is how much you talk about, you know, and, uh, and apparently this is what Russ does as well, is talk about writing stories. Mm-hmm. Talk about the, yeah. the practice of it and what it's going yeah. to do and how you can, you know, use the, the art of story storytelling to to make some political choices yeah yeah I, I think that um, this is an important thing that we as particularly as literary theorists um, give ourselves as a task is to think about not only what stories want to be doing politically but also what they actually do politically which is not always the same as what they mm. purport to be doing right. um, but yeah no I mean I think you know it, it makes the question about why Russ chooses to write such a um, such a nihilistic, such a caustic story, even more important mm-hmm. um, for someone who has modeled and has spent a career modeling um, ways that um, young women might escape from conditions of patriarchy mm. um, to then turn it around so violently. What happens after that for her? I mean, what's the next thing she does, Joanna Russ, after that book? Um, she goes back <laughs> to, to writing um, stories about uh, the two of them is, I think, the next one. Um, she goes back to writing stories about saving the child. That people won't be so angry about. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, you got to listen to your critics sometime. But it's important, I think, that uh, for me it was the most fascinating thing about it is to imagine writing a book that was 
like such a surprise, I'm sure. Like you're like, that had to be a dream or surely she'll reverse that decision in that book, right? Mm -hmm. After she, there's some psychotic thing going on with this person (laughs) and then she'll reverse it. Like rather than kill off everybody at page 60 or whatever you say, right? Yeah, but I I think what she's doing there is really uh, important because part of what she's arguing, and I think it's it's germane to her period, but actually it's germane to ours as well. um, And uh, particularly feminist and queer politics at the moment um, that representations are not one-to-one Mm-hmm. You know, that what we represent doesn't manifest in the world directly the way that we represented it. Mm. Right? And so part of what she's saying is at some point, um, the um, uh, we have to be able to break this idea that what we do immediately inform what we say immediately informs what we do, which is also a part of the, the sort of fears around children and sexual knowledge. Mm. Right. Oh, right. Um, that part of uh, the. Um, uh, part of what it means to be a child is to be free of sexual knowledge. Therefore, staging the child towards sexual knowledge is a whole procedure that has to be done correctly. And if it's not done correctly, then it will have dire consequences. Mm. Um, and so there's a direct correlation right. between right what a parent allows a child to see and how that child develops into the future. Mm. Right. Well, it's time for another break. This is Tom Waits with The Earth Died Screaming off of the 1992 album Bone Machine, which is also the name of a good pixie song. Stay with us for more apocalyptic musings when inter- Change returns on WFHB. WFHB comes from Bloom Magazine. The new Bloom Magazine website features news stories posted every day, seven days a week. You can find out more at magbloom.com. We should take a quick look at the weather. It is currently 77 degrees outside, partly cloudy. Looks like lows overnight in the upper 50s with a 20% chance of rain. Thunderstorm is possible early tonight and a low of 58. Wednesday night, excuse me, Wednesday, partly cloudy skies in the morning will give away to cloudy skies during the afternoon and a high of 82 degrees. On Wednesday night, we have considerable cloudiness and a low of 62 degrees. Look ahead on Thursday, looks like there will be cloudy skies, some stray thunderstorms possible. A high of 81 degrees, and then Thursday night, mostly cloudy, and a low of 59. And support for Interchange comes from listeners like you and Smithville Fiber, a local provider of internet voice and TV service, now also offering home automation and security systems for homes and offices throughout South Central Indiana. More information on Smithville's home automation service is available at smithvillesecurity.com.
Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is In the Name of the Future. Our guest is Rebecca Sheldon, whose book, The Child to Come, Life After the Human Catastrophe, seeks to unfold the logic of our need to tell stories that might be called reproductive futurism. That's a term used by Lee Edelman, um, right, Lee Edelman? Yeah. So we should put some flesh on that particular terminology, right? What is reproductive futurism? Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll not try to speak for Edelman, but um, but for my for myself and the way that I use it in the book, mm-hmm. um, I mean I think it, it operates on a couple of different levels. The, probably the most familiar version of reproductive futurism is the notion that you are not really a person until you've had children, mm. right? That having children is the culmination of uh, of you know meaningful experience mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. humans, um, and that you know it's not only that it's meaningful to people um, to have children, but also that if they are not reproductive, um, then they are in fact anti-futurity, right? They're not contributing toward the future. Um, And this is a longstanding um, homophobic uh, conceit um, that um, people, um, queers, um, particularly gay men, are construed as vampiric as vampires, mm-hmm. um, insofar as uh, they don't contribute to the future by having children, but instead prey on the future by converting children to being gay oh, like man. them. Right, right. <laughs> Beautiful, right, okay. Um, mm-hmm. So there's that scale, the personal scale. Um, but then there's um, the, the certainly the political scale that um, as a nation, we are acting in the best interests of future generations and mm-hmm. that that justifies, as, as you were mentioning before, it justifies um, choices, political choices that often result in widespread for death Mm -hmm. Um, because the sense of who we are right who we are as as the category of the human who we are as the category of the citizen these are not innocent terms these are um, highly uh, politically contested um, and and changeable terms Um, so um, so I mean the the contradiction between a, a, a kind of political rhetoric that seeks to act in the name of the future's children and the actuality of policies that leaves many children bereft, right, right is totally consonant with reproductive futurism. Well, so the question is is an interesting one too. As I was uh, just now, I, I thought to myself, who writes science fiction? Who has apocalyptic? natures you know i mean there they, we talked about the the religious aspect of mm-hmm. uh, of the apocalyptic um and when you write uh, i guess when the the book of revelation was written there's no sense that there's a reality to fire bombs hmm. right so there isn't a sense that this could happen on a on a human scale like a human couldn't make this happen god would have to make this happen right uh but the fact that is that we can make this happen right and this is you know we sort of fulfilling those particular mm-hmm. biblical prophecies interestingly right uh, Mm. that these things come true in the way that that they do. Um, But the culture itself that can make apocalyptics, you know, can can make these things happen is this culture, you know, or this Western human, humanist, liberal, um, successful, uh, resource-extracting culture is the only one, and maybe the only one that has this kind of idea of what a child is. You know, Uh this kind of child belongs to us not other cultures, right? Yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it. I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that um, that uh, I talk about in the conclusion of the book um, is this new term, the Anthropocene, mm-hmm. um, which is a kind of coined by a, a, a pair of scientists um, to describe the new geological epoch um, in which human action can create geoscale effect mm-hmm. um, of biblical proportions, <laughs> right, as you're saying. Right. Um, and the interesting thing about the Anthropocene, a number of, of different um, theorists have written about, in the humanities, have written about the Anthropocene. Part of the way that it's formulated makes it seem 
seem like it's about humans. (laughs) Humans are at the center again. And this is one of the ways that humanism keeps sort of sneaking back in through the back door, even when we want to talk about um, the force of the earth. Um, Mm -hmm. It winds up being about human action. Um, And I think... um, you know, one of the important things about the, I call it in the conclusion, the enthro no more scene, <laughs> because, <laughs> right. Right. because one of yeah. the things that right. it, it reminds us of is that this, those systems that industrial resource extraction have, have activated and amplified um, are energetic themselves. That's mm-hmm. why they work for human engineering systems. Um, and these processes of amplif- amplification mean that they are agential in scales and in terms that we are not wholly able to contain. Right. And so the Anthropocene is not really about the Anthropos. Right. Right? It's really about the Earth's own powers, mm-hmm. um, actualized, activated by human engineering systems, right. by this particular culture. Yeah. Right, right. Now, you talk in the book, too, about the movie Children of Men, which you see as a kind of, I guess, is more of a, uh, I guess, in a climate change movie as much as it is an infertility movie or yeah. the, the infertility is at the center of the movie. Uh, but it's, uh, is, would you, is it a metaphor for that? I mean, I, I, know, I don't remember you're talking specifically about this being a, a, a movie about climate change per se, but these are the effects of, of the future, I suppose, this future of climate change as we see it. When was the movie? Um, 2006, I believe. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's based on a P.D. James novel. It's quite a bit earlier, but the James novel and the movie are really different. Mm. Um, uh, so, I mean, um, yes. Um, I think that, so the so I talk about uh, Children of Men as one of a variety of um, fictions and films that I put under the category of sterility apocalypses. Mm-hmm. Um, they're apocalypses in which the apocalyptic scenario involves the loss of fertility on a widespread scale. Mm-hmm. Um, Battlestar Galactica is another mm-hmm. one of these sterility apocalypses. Um, and I, so, I mean, Children of Men... Um, I think doesn't use sterility to metaphorize climate change so much as it it uses the question about nature's own fecundity to ask a kind of horrifying question, maybe the inversion of the problem of climate change is too much vitality. Mm. The other side of that question is something like, what happens if there's no vitality, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What, if hap- what happens if vitality just disappears? What if nature won't give over mm. her labors to us? Mm. Um, which is kind of also the political horizon that Joanna Russ was thinking about, mm-hmm, right? Like, mm-hmm. what what happens if women just refuse to reproduce? Right? Right, right, right. Um, and I mean, so I think that you know, for for children of men, um, there's a kind of fantasy in the storytelling that um, we can eliminate the problem of too much vitality in nature and restore. This is the apocalyptic part, the revelation part, mm-hmm. and restore. Um, vitality in one particular containable form, right? right. The single pregnant woman. Right. And so then in, in Children of Men, it's not a surprise that the single pregnant woman is a woman of color. She's an immigrant. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's variously, uh, she's she's disenfranchised on a number of axes of difference. Um, and that, I think, is importantly related to a longer history of, of eugenics and of control over mm-hmm. particularly black women's reproductive labors. Let's play that. Let's play a clip from that that movie now and we'll talk about it. Please help me. 
Jesus Christ. King! What are you doing? King! Are you all right? She wanted him to know she has the right. Of course she has. For sake. When you're ready, come inside. Everybody's arrived. She's pregnant. Now you know what's at stake. But she's pregnant. Yeah, I know. It's a miracle, isn't it? That was a clip from Children of Men. I think Clive Owen is the... Is he the hero of that movie? Theo, is that right? Theo, yeah. Yeah, and um, there's a lot, just a lot going on right there as well, right? Even as we can't see it. So she's in a barn with cows lowing. Uh, um. Yeah, um, so uh, she is um, taking refuge with a group called the Fishes, um, who are um, uh, political activists um, uh, uh, who militate against the immigration policies of Britain um, as she's revealing to Clive Owen, to Theo, that she's that she's pregnant. She's the only pregnant woman. She does it in a barn, and there are a number of different um, layers of signification mm-hmm. to the choice to film it in a barn. Um, it is very obviously a Marian scene. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, she's the she's the virgin birth. Um, she's also kind of mitochondrial Eve. She's the beginning of the new beginning of the human race. Um, but um, I think it's also important that it's agricultural insofar as the um, history of producing wealth from out of reproductive labors so often happened um, in the American context in particular, but globally in terms of um, in terms of the slave trade through um, uh, treating certain categories of humans um, as agricultural labor mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well uh, uh yes uh, so many things in there as well did they were called the fishes the fishes yeah yeah so instead of i guess fishers of men the children of men is a title but uh, you you should become fishers of men right well that's true yeah um and children of men versus children of women uh-huh uh, another key issue there that's that's really true. I don't talk about that in the book, and I probably should have. But um, <laughs> it's true that there's a there's a way in which um, the hero's quest is kind of Theo's quest. Um, he he makes the he's he um, dies in the end, getting her to safety. So there's a kind of sacrificial logic. His mm-hmm. name is Theo, not for no reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that the kind of miracle of her birth, right? It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Right. Um, is that it, that sterility apocalypses, and this is true of all of the sterility apocalypses I look like I look at. Um, are not about uh, infertility per se. They're about the miraculous restoration of mm-hmm, fertility, mm-hmm. Um, and particularly um, the kind of fantasy that that miraculous restoration can happen because some, some particularly some white hero, uh, mm-hmm. loves enough. It's all about love. <laughs> it was interesting that, you know, as you're talking about the hero story, I think you, you note the Ursula Le Guin, Ursula Le Guin, carrier bag story um, who talks about hero, you know not having a hero uh, we'll have to come back to that though obviously you we're listening to Daft Punk uh, Technologic right now it's time for our last break uh, this is off of their 2005 album Human After All Rebecca Sheldon returns with what I think she described as a hopeful message perhaps maybe not she made a face <laughs> the idea of what is human is changing it could be a good thing Stay with us. Technologic. <laughs> <laughs> 
for Interchange comes from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976, serving Cajun Creole and home cooking's special every Tuesday and Wednesday morning, excuse me, evening, featuring a full bar serving fresh handcrafted cocktails. The Uptown Cafe is located in downtown Bloomington, and more information is available online at the hyphen uptowncafe.com. Support for WHB comes from Bloom Magazine. The new Bloom Magazine website features New stories posted every day, seven days a week. Find out more at magbloom.com. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is In the Name of the Future, and we're joined in the studio by IU English professor Rebecca Sheldon, whose book, The Child to Come, was published by the University of Minnesota Press last year. Uh, let's let's jump right into another clip. We'll, we'll move right to the Battlestar Galactica clip and talk a bit about reproductive technologies there as well. Um, so let's do that, and then we'll talk about why, why choose Battlestar Galactica. Okay, almost done. I think there may be a cyst on one of your ovaries. Is it serious? Nah, should be fine. We'll keep an eye on it. Gotta keep that reproductive system in great shape. It's your most valuable asset these days. Right. I'm serious. Finding healthy, childbearing women your age is a top priority for the resistance. And you'll be happy to know that you are a very precious commodity to us. <laughs> I am not a commodity. I'm a Viper pilot. Do you see any, any Vipers around here? <sighs> I mean, you do realize that you're one of a handful of women left on this planet actually capable of having children, right? I mean, that is your most valuable skill right now. Well, I don't want a child, so just drop it, okay? Well, no one's forcing you. Just take a moment and, and think about where you are, and what's going on. The human race is on the verge of, of extinction. And to be quite frank with you, potential mothers are a lot more valuable right now than, than a whole squadron of Viper pilots. I shouldn't have mentioned it. I uh, should have known you'd be sensitive. A lot of women with your history forego bearing children of their own. My history? I saw the fractures on your x-rays. A lot of old fractures from childhood. That was a clip from Battlestar Galactica, the episode called The Farm, um, which comes later in the show. But uh, this particular clip has uh, one of the heroes of the show. Uh, Kara, you're going to have to set it up a, a little bit rather than me, Rebecca, as I have not seen this uh, show either. 
sure. Well, I mean, it's it's kind of epic in scale. It's a little bit like the Game of Thrones of its mm-hmm. moment. Um, so I'm not going to go through all of the plot <laughs> twists. Sure. Um, but the general setup is that the in the near future, um, the um, what appears at first to be our familiar Earth um, has uh, pi- humans have pioneered a race of sentient um, synthetic um, beings mm-hmm. um, and the Cylons. Um, and they uh, created as tools in the history of robots. Uh, robots are often created as tools. They rebel, um, and then they try to wipe out um, humanity. And so their their attack on 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 the humans sends everybody out into space. Um, the Cylons and humans, where the Cylons try to wipe out the rest of the humans. Mm-hmm. Um, so Kara is part of the resistance, um, uh, part of the um, the remnant of, of humans that are circulating out in space. And it's it's interesting. It connects back, I think, um, profoundly that clip that you just played, both to um, We Who Are About To, um, and also back to um, uh, back to Children of Men. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is also a sterility apocalypse and in a couple of senses, but one of them anyway is that. Um, the um, the remnant human population has to has to feels like it has to keep up the population numbers, mm-hmm. and so one of the first things that Laura Rosner, the president of the fleet, does the remnant humans does, even though she's a feminist, um, is to make abortion illegal, mm-hmm. and she keeps a running count of the population numbers on a sort of whiteboard behind mm-hmm. her, um, and it, it it goes down throughout the series because they keep you know sort of blowing each other up with (laughs) atomic weapons in space. Um, So the the dialectic between securing the future through reproduction and securing the future through warfare is one of the thematic threads Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. conversation has shown me as a part of the book that I really actually didn't realize. Um, (laughs) um, But it also connects back to to Children of Men insofar as the the episode is called The Farm. Um, Carithrace is um, she's her her plane has gone down on on um, her home planet um, and she finds herself in what looks like a a hospital bed. um, But as she slowly comes to to awareness to, to consciousness she realizes that it's a weird hospital room it doesn't look right and as she wanders around the complex she walks into this room in which um, human women many human women um, are connected to they're sort of in um, gynecological stirrups they're connected to machines um, and it turns out that this is a baby farm the Cylons who are not able to have children of their own because they are um, they never die they just they get reincarnated mm. um, and, they're, and they're born without the ability to reproduce um, are looking to make mm-hmm. um, looking to make babies um, from these from these human mm-hmm. um, animals right that right. they've picked up as animals yeah. yeah we've done these things I mean these are technologies that we've we have in our our uh, like our own um, uh, reality right we don't have women hooked up that way in particular but we certainly know how to make babies well, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that that's true. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure that we would know um, if if there was a kind of um, uh, crisis of infertility, mm-hmm. if we would know how to restore mm. um, f- fertility. Um, there's a there is a kind of um, non-human vitality that's at that's stake right, in right. in just the act of reproduction. As sort of anyone who's had fertility issues knows, it's not an easy right, thing. Right, right, <laughs> right. Oh, sure, sure. I was just trying to, I guess that was a little flippant. I didn't mean to be flippant there. But um, I wanted to, I guess, try to move to, and in as little time as we have, uh, yeah. uh, to to move into that sort of technological product of 
you know, parts and, you know, making right. making human parts, making right. these kinds of things, which strikes me as a necessary uh, part of the book as well. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, this is another dialectic between control over vital systems. And I really just wanted you to use the word somatic capitalism oh. before we get off. <laughs> before we get off the air, I'm, I'm headed there. So I'm go there. there. <laughs> yeah, go there. Um, yeah, the the dialectic between control over systems and the possibility that they will escape from that control, that mm-hmm. management systems, as we see paradigmatically in nuclear waste, um, often fail mm-hmm. um, because of the vitality of the things that they're trying to contain. Um, and I, you know, so one of the things that I track through these sterility apocalypse. Um, is a a new formation um, that I call somatic capitalism in which what's important actually isn't creating whole persons so that you'll go out and you'll be a good worker and you'll go to the factory and you'll make widgets and whatever. This is a caricature, but you know what I mean. (laughs) Um, And instead to thinking about how you can be uh, the various capacities that your body brings can be themselves financialized. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the most um, uh, common experiences is Facebook, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in which your attention, like literally where your eyes track, um, is part of its financial infrastructure. Right, right. Um, but um, ever since Diamond v. Chakrabarty in the 80s, um, it's, it's been possible. Supreme Court case. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's been possible to patent forms of life, which mm-hmm. had prior fallen, not been a part of, of patent law. Um, and so um, we see this, for example, in Orphan Black, the, t- the television series, um, the, um, the new sense that it's as, it, um, it's, a, it's as possible to commodify parts, mm-hmm. um, particularly reproductive parts, um, as it is to make economies work through disciplined labors. Mm. So that's that's the 80s again. We're we're hitting the Reagan era, and uh, the things happen in the Reagan era that are affecting us now, right? Diamond uh, v. Chakrabarty, 1980. Um, so these are, um, uh, I guess, somatic capitalism is something that we we currently experience, right? This is a thing that's already going on, and 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 is one of those things in which you imagine is a, a ro- could be a robust economy, or is it one of the few things that do seem to continue to to I don't know. Like, I don't know what's a good economy anymore. Like, uh, I'm floundering here. I'm waiting for Rebecca to help me. I'm sorry. I'm Rebecca, sorry. Rebecca, <laughs> Rebecca, help me. Um, um, I, you know, it's funny because you led in, I think, I can't remember if it was last break or the break before, with, um, with you know, maybe a hopeful sign. Actually, oh, I don't have any hope. Well, it's just a downhill um, from here. Well, it's a modulation, oh, okay. right? It's a modulation okay. over um, the things that um, that are important. Well, the question, I guess, the, and we'll make it the last one because yeah. it's time to go. Yeah. Um, but the idea that you keep talking about throughout is that the natural systems are what they are. And, yeah. and this, this silly idea of the human that we've been working so hard to control and contain yeah. is yeah. that unleashed these are these things have no 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 care of you no these are not this is a common sense perspective right the, the natural world has no care of you yeah. and it will it will go about its business yeah right this is yeah. the, a, a part of the book as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean I, I i talk about it as a humbled humanity right? <laughs> right that we're just here in the dirt it doesn't seem like we well maybe we're humbling ourselves finally uh that's our show we'll close with the beatles with tomorrow never knows And that takes us back to the future of the past, to the 1966 album Revolver, or at least back to our starting point in 1964 with LBJ's Daisy Girl nuclear war scare ad, a pretty common tactic ever since. Thanks for joining us today to discuss your book, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. Again, Rebecca Sheldon, her book is The Child to Come, Life After the Human Catastrophe, brought out by University of Minnesota Press in 2016. Thanks for listening. You can find this and past programs available to download online at wfhb.org news interchange. 
I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Assistant producer is Rob Schoon. Our studio engineer is Bryce Martin. Wes Martin is our executive producer. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.